Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. incident we're going to talk about happened in 1844. But what else happened that year? Well, on the 1st of May, Samuel Morse sends the first telegraphic message. On the 6th of June, George Williams founds the Young Men's Christian Association, more often known as YMCA, in London. The 15th of June sees the Factory Act imposing a maximum of 12-hour working days for women and a maximum of a 6-hour working day for children aged between 6 and 13. And on the 9th of August, imprisonment for debt was abolished in England. The most famous debtors' prison was the Clink Prison, which had a debtors' entrance in Stony Street, London. This prison gave rise to the British slang term for being incarcerated in any prison hence in the clink. Its location also gave rise to the term for being financially embarrassed, or stony broke. But our event today concerns the actions of Joel Fisher, who was born in Wick, St Lawrence, Somerset, to John and Susanna Fisher in 1792. Joel's first job was working for Mr Bisdy, a surgeon of West Town, as his servant, which he did for 12 months before joining the army. He enlisted in the 7th Hussars in 1811, joining the regiment in Dublin and promptly being sent off to Spain. He served in the battles of Orthez and Vittoria, as well as other engagements, in which the regiment was involved until peace was established in 1814. Afterwards, at the Battle of Waterloo, he continued in the regiment until 1836. That made a total of 23 years all without a single blot or stain on his character, as a man and a soldier. Word of the Week And this week's word is... Gleaming which is used to describe something as good, desirable, or absolutely brilliant. A particular favourite of the Guards Division. So, if something is gleaming, you're probably onto a very good thing. When Joel Fisher's colonel left the regiment, he offered Fisher a job as his personal servant. Fisher accepted and lived with the colonel for nine months. He then married in Western Supermare, but his first wife died 
leaving him with three children. He then went on to marry Mary Hyatt, who was thought to be the widow of Thomas Hyatt, a labourer. She had an adult son and daughter who hated Fisher. This was Mary's third marriage. Her first husband, a known crook by the name of Hall, had gone missing in 1817, while her second husband, Thomas Hyatt, had died in 1837, leaving her with two children. This new blended family moved to Backwell, but a few months later, the couple had a huge fight and Mary left. She later returned with a man called Hall, whom she said was her husband before Hyatt. Hall then demanded items of furniture that had been acquired by Fisher when he married Mary. Fisher said no in no uncertain terms, and Hall left, taking Mary with him. Mary returned to Fisher a few months later and asked to come back, and he let her, and they settled in Western Supermare, where they bought the Devonshire Sun Inn on the Western Supermare High Street. This was supposed to be a fresh start for the family and a good business venture. Only things didn't work out that way. Western Supermare is a seaside town in North Somerset, England. It lies by the Bristol Channel, 20 miles southwest of Bristol. And the area has been occupied since the Iron Age. It was a small village, but when the Fishers moved in, it was just developing into a seaside resort. The first attempt at an artificial harbour was made in the late 1820s at the islet of Nightstone, and a slipway built from Anchorhead towards Bimbeck Island. Isambard Kingdom Brunel and his family lived in Weston at Swiss Villa while he was supervising the construction of the Bristol and Exeter railway line in the area. With the opening of the railway in 1841, thousands of visitors came to the town from Bristol, the Midlands and further afield on works outings and bank holidays. Mining families also came from across the Bristol Channel from South Wales by paddle steamer. To cater for all these people, Burnbeck Pier was completed in 1867, offering in its heyday amusement arcades, tea rooms, amusement rides and a photographic studio. Unfortunately, it's now derelict and has been added to the English Heritage's Buildings at Risk Register. To say that Joel and Mary's relationship was volatile appears to be an understatement. Several times Mary was known to pack up her things and leave. One time she was away for three months, another time she was gone for 12 months, having taken some items of linen as well as 20 pounds. That time Fisher followed her to Bath and discovered that she had put the money in a bank in Bristol and kept the cheque for it in her underwear. After this particular incident, Fisher put adverts out saying that his wife could not be trusted and that he should not be responsible for her actions. She promised that she would change her ways and Fisher took her back. But the arguments continued and this time they were more frequent and increasingly more violent. It didn't really help that Mary's daughter, who, as we said, hated Fisher, 
would join in the arguments, siding with her mother and belittling Joel whenever she could. <laughs> Word on the street. And this week we're taking a stroll down Laycock Drive in BS 15. Now, all roads in this precinct are named after abbeys. Laycock Abbey in Wiltshire was founded for women in 1232 by Ella, Countess of Salisbury, in memory of her husband, William Longsbury. She was its first abbess in 1241 and the only female sheriff that Wiltshire ever had. During the Middle Ages, the abbey was a flourishing place of education for girls and the refuge for the sick and needy. It was suppressed during the Reformation. The abbey was torn down and the Great Hall rebuilt. It eventually became the home of William Henry Fox Talbot, the 19th century photographic pioneer, and is now in the ownership of the National Trust. I hope you're enjoying these Word on the Street segments. Let me know if there's any street that you'd like me to find out the origin of its name. But now it's time to continue with our story today. On the 3rd of June, 1844, Joel Fisher went out to get more supplies and left Mary in charge of the inn. But it wasn't long before she had an argument with one of the pub's lodgers, who promptly moved out. On the 8th of June, Joel and Mary had a terrible fight, which went on throughout the night. Joel stormed about the pub in a fit of rage, threatening to murder her. That day, the other lodger had accosted Fisher when he had returned from buying more cider for the inn. The lodger complained about Mary's attitude and her violent temper, saying that he was prepared to leave. This halved the inn's income from letting rooms, so Fisher was less than thrilled when he returned home and discovered what had happened. So he had sought out his wife, telling her that another lodger would leave from her violent temper. During the argument, Fisher said that he would give it to her and by and by, she was asking for it. It was at this point that Mary declared that she would not sleep in the same bed as Fisher anymore and asked the servant, Anne Evans, to share her bed with her. But she hadn't been there long when Fisher came up the stairs and started thumping on the door, saying that he might as well kill her that night as the next morning, as he was determined to do so. Mary, anxious and scared, tried to jump out the window, but Anne, the servant, stopped her. After that, Fisher and Mary continued their fight while he was still trying to open the door, till 1am, when everything went quiet. Thinking it was all over, Mary and Anne then went to bed. But about 5am, Fisher had managed to get into the room and went to the bed with a large iron bar in his hand. Mary awoke to see her husband stood above her and the last thing he said to his terrified wife was Damn your eyes! I'll do for you now! Before bringing the bar down on her skull with a sickening crunch. He struck Mary several times in the head, shouting and screaming the whole time. The servant and children, understandably, were terrified. But Joel promised them that they would not be harmed, even as he swung the bar again and again. 
Fisher then left the room and returned a few minutes later, placed Mary's head back on her pillow and stood on her chest whilst holding a carving knife in his hand, which he used to cut her throat. The wound was apparently so deep that she was almost decapitated. Afterwards, he went to a carpenter called William Upsall, who was lodging at the inn, and confessed everything he had done, telling him to fetch a policeman. Fisher's trial took place on August the 12th of that year, with Mr Justice Patterson presiding. Mr Stone conducted the prosecution, and Mr Coburn and Mr Pradu conducted the defence. Evans told the court the murder had taken place at ten minutes past five, with Fisher saying that he had committed no sin. Instead, he claimed he had removed a great sinner from the world. William Upsall, the lodger, confirmed Anne Evans' account of what had taken place. According to Upsall, Fisher went into his room after killing his wife and said, while he was still holding the knife covered in blood, William, I've done it. For poor Mary, there was little mercy, even at the hands of the court. It was suggested by the defence that her death was down to her own violent and aggravating temper, and it was suggested that she was even disliked by her own children. Even after the jury reached their verdict of guilty, Joel Fisher told the court that his wife had been a wicked woman, and he'd thought it better to rid himself of her and hang than to go on living with her. After receiving the guilty verdict and being sentenced to hang, Joel Fisher was quite obviously overcome with grief and remorse for what he had done and threw himself into studying the scriptures and praying. Fisher had sent a letter to Mary's eldest son, Thomas, asking for forgiveness, and he received the reply just as he was walking up to the scaffold, and it greatly relieved his mind. Thomas said that with all his heart, he forgave him and that he prayed for him earnestly. Before Fisher left Wales for his execution at the county jail in Taunton, he was visited by his two sons, one aged ten, the other seven, who said their goodbyes. Fisher gave the eldest his Waterloo medal, which he had been wearing with pride since it was given to him. As he handed it over, he said, Oh, John, would that I had died Waterloo. You then never would have been born to this disgrace, and I should never have committed this dreadful crime. On the Sunday, the chaplain preached the sermon. See also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. The following Monday, Fisher's brother and an old comrade visited him. The friend had travelled a hundred miles to see him, and declared that he had been in the same regiment as Fisher for twenty years. He said that Fisher was a clean, well-behaved soldier who had industrious and sober habits, that he had never once been reported for misconduct, and was the servant the same officer when a captain, major and then colonel. The night before his execution, Fisher went to his room early to pray for strength 
for what was to come. The next day saw a huge crowd of over 5,000 people from the surrounding areas who came to witness the execution. Shortly before 11 on September the 4th, 1844, the sad procession with Joel Fisher, aged 52, moved towards the scaffold. Fisher was dressed as a common labourer and appeared older than his years. During the preparations by the executioner, the placing of the cap, adjusting of the ropes, Fisher continued to pray. His last words before the drop were, Oh God, pardon my sins and receive my soul. One hour after the execution, the body was cut down and buried within the walls of the prison. Several applications were made to the governor of the prison from people who were suffering from what was called the king's evil, a tuberculosis swelling of the lymph glands. They asked for permission for the hands of the dead man to be rubbed over the affected parts. They believed at the time that this was a cure for their ailment. Needless to say, all applications of this sort were denied. On the 10th of September, 1844, a public meeting was held at the Friends Meeting House in Bridgewater. There, a petition was drawn up to be delivered to Queen Victoria against capital punishment. It read, May it please your majesty, we, your majesty's most dutiful and loyal subjects of the borough of Bridgewater, have assembled in public meeting to take into consideration the punishment of death in consequence of the execution at Taunton of Joe Fisher for murder on Wednesday, September 4th, which was attended by many persons from this town and neighbourhood. We beg most humbly and dutifully to represent to your majesty our deep conviction that the punishment of death ought not under any circumstances to be inflicted by human beings on their fellow men. We believe it to be unchristian and impolite for the following reasons. Because conviction is more rare when the parties concerned as prosecutors, witnesses or jurors apprehend that if the criminal is found guilty, they shall be partners to his execution. Because there is no redress if the innocence of the person who has undergone the sentence should afterwards be proved. Because no opportunity is given for the reformation of the criminal and because experience has demonstrated that public executions promote crime rather than deter from it. That, most gratefully acknowledging the benefits which we have derived from Your Majesty's authority, we would hope that we may still enjoy from Your Majesty's government the blessing of an entire abolition of capital punishment, believing, as we do, that such a measure would add much to the security of life and property and add another splendour to Your Majesty's reign. And we pray that Your Majesty may long live to see the benefits of such an act, which must be so congenial to Your Majesty's benevolent mind and kindness of heart. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any evidence of a reply, but it's worth pointing out that the last hanging was in 1964, and that was of Peter Anthony Allen at Walton Prison in Liverpool, and Gwen Owen Evans at Strangeways Prison in Manchester. They were executed for the murder of John Allen West on the 7th of April, 1964. If someone has COVID-19, they breathe it out in particles. Particles that hang in the air like smoke, 
In airless rooms, COVID-19 can build up over time, so it's harder to avoid breathing it in. So when you're with others, open windows to disperse these particles. Just 10 minutes every now and again is enough to help. Stop COVID-19 hanging around. Today, boffins have discovered why Peter Pan always flies. It's because he never lands. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 29th of January, 1856, when the Victoria Cross was established to acknowledge valour in the face of the enemy. On the 30th of January, 1661, Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, is ritually executed after being dead for over two years. He died of septicemia following a urinary infection on the 3rd of September, 1658, aged 59. On the 31st of January, 1918, a series of accidental collisions on a misty Scottish night leads to the loss of two Royal Navy submarines, with over a hundred lives and damage to another five British warships. On the 3rd of February, 1863, Samuel Clemens first uses the pen name Mark Twain in a Virginia City newspaper, The Territorial Enterprise. And the 3rd of February 1959 will always be called The Day the Music Died, due to a plane crash that kills musicians Buddy Holly, Richie Valens and J.P. Richardson, as well as the pilot, near Clear Lake in Iowa. And that, my friends, is the end of this particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to thank those who really brought it all to life. And this particular episode, we had Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, Molly Jeffries, and Sam Roberts from St. Stephen's Drama Group, right here in Bristol. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>